Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. We are uh, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and I love that song. Rejoice, rejoice. I love singing that song. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we can sing rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Israel. It's just a joy to, to think about that as I look at you and think of some of the trials to joy in your life, some of the obstacles to joy in your lives. And there's different stories here in different seasons of life where there are challenges to rejoicing in the Lord. But the Lord will come to you, and it's a joy to sing that together. It's also a blessing today because it's our first time singing in the presence of Nia. Nia's back there in the corner. So praise God for Nia being here and us uh, being able to call her to rejoice in Emmanuel and her hearing gospel truths sung. Hopefully she gets to hear lots of Jesus in her time with us here um, as we gather Sunday after Sunday. Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, it's on page 607. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hardcover pew Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn to page 607 there. Chapter 9 is the big number. When I say verses 1 through 7, those are the small numbers. So we're doing Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, not 6 and 7, but 1 through 7. It's going to go from page 606, 607 to 608 in the Pew Bible. Feel free to use that if you don't have your own. All right, we want to hear God speak in an inerrant, infallible way where we know for sure this is God speaking to us. So let's hear his word read. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ will richly among us. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can meditate and even read a passage that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Over 2,700 years ago, Isaiah penned these words, and we get to read them and think about how they waited for the promised Messiah, the one that we celebrate this Christmas season. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to see wonderful things here from your word. And so we pray along with the psalmist of Psalm 119, teach us, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and we will always keep them. Help us understand your instruction, and we will obey it and follow it well with all our hearts. Help us stay on the path of your commands, for we take pleasure in them. Turn our hearts to your decrees and not to dishonest prophets. Turn our eyes from looking at what is worthless. So many worthless things that we see and look at. Give us life in your ways. Confirm what you said to your servant, for it produces reverence for you. Turn away the grace that we dread, the disgrace that we dread. Indeed, your judgments are good. 
how we long for your precepts. Give us life through your righteousness. Give us hope in our hopelessness and light in our darkness. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I preached this same sermon text and sermon, essentially the same sermon, on November 26th. Aaron and Pam were with us um, at Revelation Church of Christ Holiness in Compton. Remember Josh Jones? Do you guys remember Josh Jones came and preached here? So I preached this over there. And Aaron led in that song. That's where we learned hope for everyone from them, right? That's where we learned the song. And uh, after I preached the sermon, I sat down. And the pastor came up to kind of review my sermon, not like in a critical way, but just to kind of review key points and preach a second sermon. So I'm sitting there encouraged and just relieved that, that I was able to finish preaching there to a church I didn't know that well. And as I was sitting there on the front row, I started having a, a panic attack. I thought I was having a heart, I don't know if I was having a heart attack or a panic attack, but my chest got super tight. It, the pain spread to the back. Eventually the pains are going up my neck into the jawline. And I'm like, oh no, I'm gonna die right here on the front row at Revelation Church. And I was like, oh, I wish I died at our church instead. That was my first thought. I was like, I wish I was dying on the front row at our church instead. I don't know why I thought that, but I did. And then, um, yeah, I started thinking, I'm ready to die. And, and, and so eventually the Lord calmed me down. There's more to that story, but uh, for the point of this, the Lord calmed me down and um, I had a checkup with my doctor last Monday, got EKG, blood work done. And then um, Tuesday we have Shepherd LA lunch. And so we're there having lunch. And then at the end of the day, I call my wife to tell her I'm coming home. And then I see that I missed a call from the doctor who called during the Shepherd LA lunch. And I said, check my voice. And says, Peter, call me back. And that's all I said, hang up. But of course, that's all he's supposed to say, right? But oh man, the anxiety just shot through the roof. <laughs> Because the doctor only calls when there's a problem, yeah. right? He doesn't call when the tests are all fine. So I'm panicking. I call him back. I call his cell phone. He doesn't answer. So I call Francis to ask her to pray for me. And then Dr. Kian calls me back. So I'm like, kind of got to go. I got to talk to the doctor. So I talk to the doctor. And uh, he tells me what's going on, that I need to see a specialist for more, more tests. And uh, I was overwhelmed with worry. Anxiety. Fear. And then, and then sadness as well. Just sad about the situation. Maybe tempted to despair. I don't think I felt despair, but feeling tempted towards that. And, and, and maybe the temptation of hopelessness pressed on me. I don't think I felt hopeless. I just sent the pastor counsel, um, my, my, um, my soul check-in update, which was pretty good. And then I, when we got to the pastor counsel, which was like dinner, and then go back to church. I'm like, hey, guys, what I said, that's just not where I'm at right now. I'm like in a totally different place right now than I was when I sent the, the update. Yeah, and I was, I was just burdened. It felt, I was, it was sad. I mean, I was sad and just wrestling with new news. And I know many of you face times like that, where you feel sad. Sometimes you might feel hopeless or fearful or anxious or worried. Or some of you, it lasts so long that you could even feel hopeless and despairing. The holidays are happy times for many people, but for some people, holidays are dark days. They're difficult days. They're sad times. And even if it's not the, particularly the holidays that, um, that are dark for you, we will all walk eventually through the valley of the shadow of death. We'll all walk through our dark valleys one day. If you're not in that season now, you will be soon. So we face dark days now and we face it in the future. And, and you know, the, the hard part is like, it's not just the darkness coming from the outside that's pressing in on you. <coughs> what about, I mean, the darkness inside. I mean, it's not, it's one thing to have pressure on the outside, but when there's doubt in your own heart, when there's fear in your own heart, when there's not trusting God within, and there's doubt and pride and self-sufficiency within and self-reliance in your own heart. I mean, it's not just darkness from the outside, but the inside, like there's darkness coming from both directions. And that makes life really hard. That makes it really difficult. When darkness gets on the inside, when the trial from the outside grabs a foothold on your heart on the inside and the frustration turns to disappointment, the disappointment turns into despair and depression and hopelessness and even cynicism where we become cynical 
not just of the situation, but of people, not just of people, but even, dare we say it, of God himself? How do we go on? How do we go on? There's a main question I want to answer from this passage today, and that question is this. So it's not a main goal, it's a main question. What hope does God give Israel in their dark days? And the second question, which is tied to that, is what hope does he give us today? And we have to answer, we have to answer those questions in that order. What hope does God give Israel in their dark days? And then from that answer, we can get a good answer for us. What hope does God give us today in our dark days? The good news is we don't need to be stuck in dark and sad days. There is light for the darkness. There is joy for the sadness. And there is hope for the hopeless. So let's take these questions by answering a few questions. And so the first question, so I just have a, um, a few questions here to answer to, to work through this passage. The first question is this. What darkness did Israel face? Okay, that's question number one. What darkness did Israel face? Look at verse one. It says, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he'll bring honor by the way of the sea to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. Notice here in verse one, there are, there's gloom for the distressed. What is the gloom of distress? What is the gloom of distress? Like, well, and then verse two says people are walking in what? Darkness. And then at the end it says on those living in the land of darkness. Another translation for that second one is the land of deep darkness. So the ESV translates that second one, deep darkness. People are living in darkness. They're walking in darkness. They're walking in gloom. What is that gloom? Well, if you go back to the last verse of Isaiah 8, verse 22, it talks about gloom. The gloom of affliction. And that the, the Israelites will be driven into thick darkness. What is that darkness? That darkness in Isaiah 8 is the darkness of an Assyrian invasion, a political threat, a military threat, a cultural threat. An army is coming for them. People who are going to conquer them and scatter them. And it wasn't if, it was when. The question wasn't if they were gonna come, they were coming. The question was when. God even prophesied they were coming. I don't know if you guys remember a few years ago, we had a sister here who was a missionary talking about getting chased by ISIS. And she was going from village to village and they were, she was just one village ahead of ISIS. Do you guys remember that? There's a sister here who, who shared her stories as a missionary, I think in Afghanistan. I mean, just imagine if you're living in Ukraine and you hear that Russia, you watch on the news that Russia's invading and they're not in Bellflower yet, they're in South LA, but they're coming here going to Orange County. So they're just a few cities over and they're coming down. Yeah, there's a few skirmishes, they're 20 miles away, but they're only 20 miles away. And you know they're coming. That's dark. What are you gonna do with your family? Your, your culture is gonna be gone, your family is gonna be threatened, they might be broken up. And so these people were living under the threat of darkness. And the darkness was not just on the outside. Look at Isaiah 8, 19 and 20. When they say to you, this is what, this is what their culture was like, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter. This is what they're doing. They're inquiring of mediums and spiritists. And God says, shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. And these people were so lost that they weren't even, when they were in this darkness, they weren't even going to God. They're going to spiritists and mediums, to those who speak to the dead, to fortune tellers. We're scared of what's gonna happen to Bellflower. They're just 20 miles up. Let's go to the fortune tellers and get some help. Let's get some encouragement. Let's go on our phones and see if we can find some, 
social media accounts that are encouraging and will lift our spirits in these days. They're going to everywhere except for God. And that would lead to despair. And so they are, in verses 21 and 22 of, of Isaiah 8, they're dejected. They're going to be hungry. They're going to be famished. They're going to become enraged. They're going to look upward. They're going to curse their king. They're going to curse God. They'll look at the earth and only see distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. That's their problem. If I had time, and in the last time I preached this, I would encourage you to read Isaiah 59, 1 through 16. You could do that for homework. Read Isaiah 59, 1 through 16, and just look how dark their culture was. I'll just read a few highlights here. Their iniquities have separated them from God. This is what God's word says. Your hands are defiled with blood. Lips have spoken lies. Tongues mutter injustice. They trust in empty and worthless words. They cannot cover themselves with their works. It says that their, their thoughts are sinful thoughts. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. They have not known the path of peace. There's no justice in their ways. They have made their roads crooked. No one who walks on their roads will know peace. Therefore, it says about Israel at this time, justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. And here's kind of the key theme here. We hope for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we live in the night. We grope along a wall like the blind. We grope like those without eyes. We stumble at noon as though it were twilight. We are like the dead among those who are healthy. We're like the walking dead. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. Transgression and deception against the Lord. We know our iniquities. Transgression and deception against the Lord. Turning away from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering lying words from the heart. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off. For truth has stumbled in the public square. And honesty cannot enter. Truth is missing. And whoever turns from evil. So when you're doing the right thing and you turn away from evil. Whoever turns from evil is plundered. You get jacked. The Lord saw that there was no justice and he was offended. Those are dark days for Israel. So you have just a dark culture. You try to do the right thing and no one's doing the right thing around you and then an army is coming. So what hope does God give Israel in the darkness? What hope does he give us today? So we ask the question, what, Israel, what darkness did Israel face? Let's ask a question about us. What darkness do we face today? What, what darkness do we face today? Well, biblically speaking, we are in exile. We have broken and decaying bodies. So there's sickness. There's death. Last Tuesday, one shepherd LA was sharing about, one shepherd LA pastor was sharing about his brother-in-law, who's 45 years old and recently diagnosed with terminal cancer. He has three kids between eight to 12 years old. And then my doctor calls that same day. <laughs> so we're sick, we have broken bodies. We're decaying. And then there's natural disasters, right? There's hurricanes, earthquakes, fires. We had a little hurricane that even swept across Bellflower, right? A little hurricane. But we get fires, we get earthquakes. And then there's the, not just the natural disasters, but there's the cultural currents, right? In, in our culture today, there's the belittling of human life from conception to old age. There's gender confusion in our world. There's marital confusion, there's sexual confusion. There's neglect of the poor. There's neglect of the immigrant, the ethnic minority, the disenfranchised, the oppressed who have no voice. We are in a broken world where there's tension in our culture and our society. We have unrighteous people exploiting other people. And then for those who are not even intentionally exploiting other people or oppressing other people, we have systems that continue to perpetuate unrighteous pressure by people who have good intentions. People like you and me who have no, no intention to make things worse for people around us, but just the very way we live our lives and the cultural patterns and our routines in the structure and system of the world <laughs> makes it harder for others, unrighteously so. 
And then we have wars in our world, right? There's wars in our world right now. And then we have the world opposing the church, persecuting the church or opposing the church or mocking the church or marginalizing Christians. So the church faces opposition. So that's all on the outside. And then what about us on the inside? We're sinners too, right? There's darkness in us. We have indwelling sin in us. The flesh and the spirit wage war against each other. Galatians 5. Francis and I, yesterday, we were doing prayers of confession together. and We were praying against pride in our lives and self-sufficiency. Where we just think we, we have enough. We have our own resources. We got this. And so we say like Paul, we do what we don't want to do. And the good we want to do, we don't do. And even when we're doing good, evil is right there beside us. Darkness outside of us, darkness inside of us, Satan actively deceiving us. There's also demons. I forgot to talk about demons and Satan in this world. They blind us from truth. And that's why we pray what Peter prayed here, what Jesus taught us to pray. Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Why? Because the evil one is oppressing. He's active. He's not only actively deceiving those around us, he's active, uh, deceiving us, he's deceiving our loved ones. Right? We look at our kids. I'm seeing Noah over here and Selah, just how cute they are as they're about to go to class. And we pray for our kids' salvation. We want them to be saved. But Satan is attacking them too. He's blinding them as well. And so we pray, God, open their eyes. Deliver them. Deliver our children. Deliver each one of our kids. <laughs> And Satan's actively deceiving the universal church and the visible church. There's false teaching in churches, false gospels, prosperity gospels, superstition. Hypocrisy is tolerated and sometimes celebrated. Works-based justification, a culture of performance and works rather than a culture of grace and repentance and faith. Meaningless membership, unclear gospels, traditionalism, naive biblicism. Monoculturalism, where we confuse the culture of our church with the culture of the Bible, ethnocentrism, partisanship, culture wars. It's happening in the church, right? Prosperity and a love of money, greed, comfort, convenience, entitlement. There's factions, there's divisions, there's criticism, naive acceptance, territorialism among churches. And then everyone in our church, they're still facing their own tribulations and distress. Paul says we face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But we face these real dark and difficult things. Even our own local church, even BBC, can be caught unaware by the devil, and members, even pastors, can be caught by the devil to do his will and not see that they're actually caught by the devil. That's what 2 Timothy 2, 24, 26 says. Not just non-Christians, Christians and members of our church, and even leaders in our church, pastors in our church, can be caught by the devil unintentionally doing his will, harming others in the church without even knowing it. That happens. So we've got darkness on the outside, we've got darkness in the inside, we've got darkness among us. And so we ask the question, will our lives count the way we hope? Will we ever get the fulfillment and the light and the stability we want in our lives? I mean, when I think about LA, will LA be saved? Will revival come? One of the prayers is that there would be a healthy church in every city of LA and every neighborhood of LA, and every city of Orange County, so that members of churches don't have to drive two cities over to find a healthy church. But there's a healthy church in every city. Will God ever do that? I mean, it seems impossible. Will God bring light and hope? Well, what hope does God give Israel? Perhaps we can find hope for ourselves there. So let's think about this. What hope does God give Israel? Or what, promise, what promises did God make to Israel? So let's go back to the passage. There's a promise in verses 2 and 3. What promise does God give Israel? Listen to verses 2 and 3, and I want you to tell me the promise you see here. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged or increased the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing 
spoils. All right? What is God promising Israel? Someone say it out loud. Light. And then from verse 3? Joy. Joy. That's right. God is promising light for the darkness and joy for the gloom. Joy for the distress. Joy for the sorrow of exile. And for the decrease and the scattering, he's promising an enlarging of the nation. When the nation's going to shrink in, in exile, he's promising an enlarging of the nation. Right? So light and joy for the nation. Now, it gets a little complicated here, so I need you to follow me, okay? You guys need to do work. I'm not the only one working here. You're working. you got to think here, okay? In this passage, there are layers of reasons. So the promise is light and joy but there's another layer there's two promises here and then there's another set of promises so we're actually going to go lower and lower in in the basis for light and joy so the second layer is in verses four and five on what basis can you hope for light on what basis can you hope for joy verse four why why can we hope for light why can we hope for joy for you god have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulder, on their shoulders. The staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. So what does God promise there? A shattering of their oppression. What do you call it when you're no longer oppressed? You're oppressed for so long and you're breaking from the oppression. What do you call that? Freedom. freedom. That's a promise of freedom. You can't have joy and happiness when you're not free, right? I mean, if you're oppressed under the yoke of slavery and, and captors, who are running your life, that, there's no joy there. That's dark. So we need freedom from oppression. And God promises freedom from the oppression. And he says in verse 4, just as you did on the day of Midian. Anyone know what that is? The day of Midian. This is why your kids are over there. You know why they're over there? They learn Bible stories. So when they grow up and they read passages like this, they know what it's talking about. The day of Midian is a story of I just noticed it rhymes. The story of Gideon, okay? The day of Midian is the story of Gideon when he opposed Midian with 300 soldiers. You guys remember that story? In Judges 6, 7, and 8, there are the, the, the soldiers of Midian. I mean, they're, they're like sand on the seashore. There's soldiers upon soldiers upon soldiers. Just You look out and they just have like tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of soldiers about to invade your tribe. They're Midianites. And um, I think Gideon had like 30,000 soldiers or something like that. So you got 30,000 against hundreds of thousands of soldiers. You got no chance. And then God says, your army's too big. You need to pare it down. So he pares it down, pares it down. You should look at, read the story. But God eventually pares down Gideon from 30,000 or something like that, tens of thousands of people, to 300 men. That's it. 300 men. And you're like, how is God... How are they going to defeat hundreds of thousands of soldiers with 300 men? So Gideon is nervous. And so the night before the battle, he goes, like God tells him, to go, to the, go into their camp and go sneak in there and listen to their conversation. So Gideon sneaks into the camp and he's there. There's maybe soldiers around a campfire. They're, they're warming their hands and they're talking. They got their hundreds of thousands. And Gideon sneaks up in there. Nobody notices that it's Gideon. He's there and they're like saying, man, have you heard about Gideon? They're going to crush us. Their army is, you know, their army is so strong. Like we have no chance. And, and they're scared. So Gideon hears in the campfire that some of their soldiers are scared. And he's like, why are they scared? Right? So it says that Gideon, I love this part. It says that Gideon actually, when he hears that, he just bows and worships Yahweh. Like right there upon hearing the encouraging news. that they're scared. So... Then the next day, uh, or that night, I think it's that night, I'm not sure if that night or the next day, you could read Judges 6 through 8 for the details. But Gideon and his 300, they position themselves all around the camp, right, on the hills. And they have, um, was it clay jars? And they got torches, and they, they all smash the clay jars at the same time. They light their torches, and they give a battle shout in the middle of the night. The hundreds of thousands of soldiers all wake up, and they start killing each other, like in this great frenzy of fear. They start fighting and they don't even know what's happening and they start killing each other and they flee. And so then the 300 chase them along with others and they finally end up killing Midian. 
But 300 men killing, defeating an army of hundreds of thousands of soldiers. How does that happen? What's the explanation? Is it because the 300 were so strong? What's the explanation? Who gets the credit? God does, right? And what is God saying here? God is saying, that was Judges 7, by the way. Um, God is saying, just like the days of Midian, when you guys had no chance, I delivered you. I freed you. I'm the one who defeated that darkness. I'm the one who defeated that army. And just like I did for them, I promise you joy and light because I will free you from oppression just as I did in the days of Midian. So they would be given freedom from their oppressors, the Assyrians who are coming down. God promises freedom for his people. But not just freedom, there's a second, second uh, reason why we can, have, we can trust in the joy and light, or they can. Look at verse 5. For, why can we have joy and light? Why? For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Every boot will be burned. Every garment of war will be burned. So what is God promising here? It's tied to freedom, but I'm going to give this one a different label. I mean, it's one thing to be free for like a season, right? If you defeat the army, like let's say an army was invading here and you, we defeated them in one battle and they kind of got pushed back, but they just regroup. Do you live in peace with joy and light? No, like you're ready for the next, like, man, we don't know if it's over, right? Until, until it's over, we don't know if it's over. And so what is God saying here? Every boot, every single soldier, all their boots will be burned, all their garments. In other words, their army will be literally annihilated. There is no soldier left. So what is God promising here? He's promising security. Right, it's one thing to have freedom for a season, but God is saying every boot will be burned. Not only will you have light and joy because I'm gonna give you freedom, but I'm gonna secure that freedom against the enemy such that the enemy will never even have, be able to lift a finger against you. That's the promise. Security, the enemy will no longer be a threat. And this is what we want, right? I mean, we want real light for our darkness. We want real joy in our gloom and our sadness and pain. And we want these things through freedom for us and our people. And we, we want it from security, from all outside enemies and threats. Right, that's our prayer. Lord, bring this to us. This is what I want. Right, you gotta go do another medical test. Like, I just want security. I don't want just security for like a week. Like, I, wanna, I don't wanna die, right? I mean, I don't wanna get sick anymore. Right, that, that's what we want. We want a security that lasts. And how would God bring this freedom? So, how would God bring this freedom and security? So, the promise is light and joy. The basis is freedom and security. But there's a basis under that. How will God bring freedom and security that's permanent to his people? You got to go to the next verse. Verse six. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. There it is. What's the final basis for why you know you'll have light and joy? Why you know you'll have freedom and security? Because God is promising a king. And if the government's on his shoulder, God is promising a kingdom. Because when you have a king who rules and dominates, and he's good to you, and you have a kingdom that he brings, so that there's no outside threat, you're safe. You're secure. You're free. And you're free to enjoy all the light and joy that God has for his people. So let's think about this. I want to think about a king and a kingdom. And then there's one more at the bottom of all of it. And we'll get to this at the end of the sermon in verse 7. But let's, let's think about a king and a kingdom first. Let's look at this. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born for us and a son will be given to us. What does it mean a child? A child born. Now a child relates to him and his ancestry. If a child is born to us, he's born from parents. And these parents have parents who have parents who have parents. So it's, it's emphasizing that this child will, have, will be human and we'll have an ancestry that goes back. And we know from verse 7 that he's going to reign on the throne of David. So his ancestry is going to go back to David's ancestry. He's going to be a king. Not only is a child born for us, 
but a son is given to us. And this is expressing his maleness. He's going to be male, not female. He's going to have dignity in the royal line. So he's going to be born as a human. So um, here's what one commentator says. Child relates to him in his ancestry. Son expresses his maleness and dignity in the royal line. He is born as a human. He is born as from human parentage and given as from God. That's Christmas, right? Child born, child born for us, a son given to us. And then he has names. Look at verse six. The government will be on his shoulders. We'll pick that up in a second when we talk about kingdom. Let's think first about the king. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. Now, I'm not going to spend equal time on all four of these titles. I want to spend most time on this one. Wonderful Counselor. What does it mean that he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor? That this child is going to be called Wonderful Counselor. It means that he's going to be a supernatural counselor. Or he's going to give supernatural counsel. Some counsel that's out of the ordinary. Wisdom that is extraordinary and miraculous. Now, he's going to give counsel from divine wisdom. That's, that's um, source is not only wonderful, but it leads us to see God's wonder. The wonder of God's glory and the enchantment of his divine goodness in the things of this world. So here's what wonder means. When you think of wonder, think of spontaneous praise. You know when you see something wonderful, it just mesmerizes you right away? You guys know I sent an email to the church. Our family, Lord willing, we'll see just because our, our family's health. But we might be going to Yosemite today. And uh, we'll be there. And Francis is looking forward most to seeing the captain. You guys know the captain? El Capitan. I'm translating for you guys. <laughs> captain. El Capitan. Right? But El Capitan, like, you see it and you don't have to think... Oh, this is wonderful. You just see it, and what happens? Wonder. You just feel it. Spontaneous. Wonder. And this counselor is going to give such counsel that when he counsels you, you immediately see wonder. And that's what the Bible does, doesn't it? I mean, think of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds a house, the, the builder builds it in what? In vain. Have you ever seen good, flourishing families? Do you see any good, flourishing families in this church? Do you see any houses that were, are well-built in this church? Households that are well-built? Yes or no? Do you know why, you know why they're well-built? The, the, the dads and moms don't do it well. I mean, they do it in vain. Unless who builds it? God. In other words, every time you see a, a family that's flourishing, you know what you see? God built that family. And it should cause you to wonder. What an amazement. That that marriage is working. That the, that the family is functioning. Because you know what? It's not, the, it's not the dad or mom ultimately. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. That counsel should make you wonder. Or think about the church. I mean, I look out at you. I, I, I said this a few Sundays ago when we talked about the rich young man. With man, talking about salvation and choosing Christ over riches, with man it is what? Impossible. But with God what? All things are possible. Speaking of salvation, speaking of someone actually choosing Jesus over this world. And when you look at this, the members of this church, what do you see? You see 160 members who have chosen Jesus over this world. You see the impossible. Not just once, not just twice, not just three times. But you just look around, you have a community of the impossible. This church is impossible. Except the fact that God is working in this church. And praise God, not just this church, but hundreds of other churches in Southern California, right? But we see, we just come to church on Sunday, we don't see the wonder. But the wonderful counselor comes and shows us, I don't use this in a bad way, but in a very God-sense way, the magic of this world. The enchantment of the fact that this is not normal. It's not normal to see another Christian to share takeaway and love Jesus more. That's not natural. That's supernatural. And it's the counselor who speaks his counsel and his word that not only makes things wonderful, but gives us eyes to see so that when you look around a church or you look outside and you see a bird and you think, he feeds the birds of the sky and clothes the flowers of the field. How much more will he clothe and, and feed me? And you see glory everywhere. You see wonder everywhere. 
kindness of God when you see the sunrise. I mean, you see the sunlight out the window. Do you see glory? I mean, there's sun, there's light coming into this building from the outside. You know why? Because God causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. That's glory. There's wonder there. The wonder of God's goodness. Brothers and sisters, when you are in darkness and gloom, pray that God would open your eyes to see the wonder that is really there. This world is amazing because God is amazing. There is goodness all over this world and all over this room because in goodness is Godness. God is there. It's not, 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 not that God is the goodness, but the goodness is a flowing of God's goodness into this world. And the good you see and the wonders you sense are the wonders of God himself. And we have the wonderful counselor who gives us his word to reveal wonders to us. And his counsel is so good that the decisions he'll make to set up his kingdom, take supernatural wisdom, the wisdom to lead God's people. He's wiser than Solomon, this child born to us, this son given to us. He's not only called wonderful counselor. I wanna take the most time there, but let's look at these other ones briefly. He's also called the mighty God. Mighty there is the word for warrior. He's mightier than David and Samson and David's top fighters. David was undefeated in his battles. Do you guys know that? He never lost a battle. As far as the biblical record goes. And this warrior is the mighty God, the warrior God. He is God, Emmanuel, God with us. He cannot be defeated. He's the warrior who's going to bring, out, bring about security and freedom. Because he's the one who's going to defeat the enemies. He's also called, look at verse 6, eternal what? Father. Eternal Father. Eternal, that points to his deity. I mean, if there's only one person who's eternal, that's God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything else has a beginning, except God. He's eternal. But he calls him not just eternal, but the eternal Father. That means he has concern for the helpless. He cares. He has care and discipline for his people. He rules, his rule follows the pattern of a divine father. Psalm 103.13 says this, as a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. We have an eternal father in this son given to us who knows that you're dust and he cares about you. He's compassionate towards you. So when you see eternal father, Think attention, care, compassion, provision. A king who reigns and fathers and guides and cares for and protects his people eternally. And it probably means father for another reason in Isaiah. I mean, we're talking about Jesus. And Romans 8 calls Jesus not our father, but our brother. He's the first among many brothers. Do you guys know that Jesus is your brother if you're a Christian? He's your brother. But here, he's called eternal father. That's a strange title for someone who's your brother, right? But why is he called eternal father here? Maybe one other reason, Isaiah 53, 10. You guys know Isaiah 53 is about the cross, right? But Isaiah 53, 10 says this. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. So this crucified one, this suffering servant, will see his own offspring. That's father-like language, right? That, that this, this suffering servant has offspring. So he's the eternal father. And lastly, he's the prince of peace. Absence of war, peace and fulfilled, a fulfilled life, well-being, freedom from anxiety and worry, harmonious relationships. Not just peace within yourself, peace in your relationships with other people. And most of all, peace with God, between you and God. This Prince of Peace is bringing peace internally, relationally, externally with the world and with nature, and peace with God. He's a Prince of Peace. So that's the king. All right, so God promises a king, and, that's, and then he also promises a kingdom. Look at verse 6 again. The government will be on his what? Shoulders. And look at verse 7. His dominion will be vast. He's going to have a global dominion. As we know from the rest of Isaiah. So this prosperity, look at the next one. It's prosperity will never end. So he's not prosperous for a season, not security for a season, 
Not light and joy just for a few months. Not security for just a few years. Four years and then he's re another election happens or eight years, two terms. And then he's gone from being elected. He doesn't die. This prosperity, this security, this safety and freedom will never, ever end. It will never end. His reign, continuing the verse, his reign will be on the throne of David and over his, over his kingdom. And he will establish this kingdom and reign to establish and sustain it with what? Justice and righteousness from now on and forever. Righteousness from now on and forever. This is an empire without imperialism. This is rule without exploitation. This is a sharing in its own perfect fulfillment. You know, one time I was walking, when I was sharing the gospel in LA, living in LA, the director of Chateau Recreation Center, me and him would go for walks at, uh, in the Hollywood Hills up to um, Griffith Observatory. We do that maybe once a week, I'd walk with him. He wasn't a Christian, I'd share the gospel with him. And one time I was sharing the gospel with him and I, I asked him, um, I was like, Manny, what is the biggest problem in the world? Or, you know, ask him to describe a perfect world. We all have the same description of a perfect world. I said, what's the biggest problem in the world? He says, corrupt leaders, corrupt government, for sure. Like, if we just had, you know, corrupt, yeah, corrupt leaders, they're selfish, they take advantage, they use their power, and they just do whatever they want, and then they just, they get fat off of it, and we just have to suffer for it. That's the problem of sin. Then ask him the problem of the, the gospel, his gospel. What's the solution to this problem? And his solution was, we just need to elect better leaders. We need better leaders all across the board. I wonder what you'd say at that point. So I said, Manny, do you think that those leaders that we elect could ever become corrupt? I mean, they're probably gonna be tempted with selfishness that's just like me and you are, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I guess a lot of them would become corrupt. So I said, yeah, I don't, I don't know a solution. This is the solution. Someone who's gonna rule with justice and righteousness. Someone who cannot be corrupted. Someone who will not be corrupted. Someone who will rule with love and righteousness and justice and peace with God in the center and others fully concerned about and, and cared for. With perfect discipline and righteousness and justice. And he's gonna sit on David's throne with right judgment and everything will be put to right. So what does God promise? Hope for the hopeless, joy for the, those in gloom, light for the darkness. He promised joy and light based on security and freedom, based on a king and his kingdom. So I'm looking at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Now I have a question for you. Okay. Um, so the king came. My question is, has God fulfilled this promise for Israel? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. The king came, right? Did the king come? Yes. He was born. He was given. A son will be given. So we're, that's what we're celebrating Christmas. And why do we say son not born, but a son given? Because he already existed. God was the father loving and giving life to his son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God has been a personal communion of love for all eternity. And this reflection, this eternal son is now sent into the world. And the son becomes flesh and dwells among us. He becomes a man for us and for our salvation. He's the mighty God, and he comes to us, and he obeys God perfectly. Jesus is his name, right? Jesus, the son born, or the, the, the child given, the son given to us. The child born, the son given to us. His name is Jesus the Messiah, son of Mary, adopted legal son of Joseph. And what did he do in his life? He obeyed God. He trusted God. He taught people. He discipled the crowds. He commissioned apostles. He resisted temptation. He defeated Satan's temptations. He loved people. He went to the cross and died on the cross for sinners. He rose from the dead. He came to fulfill the purposes of God to David and to Israel and to Abraham. Jesus Christ came to save sinners from their sins. Friends, if you're not a Christian, this is the good news of Christianity. So forget everything I said and just remember this. God made us for his kingdom. God made us to enjoy him in light and love and life forever. He didn't make us to die. 
He didn't make us to be evil and selfish. He made us to enjoy each other and enjoy him and worship him forever. But our problem is that we all sin. We are all selfish on the inside. And because we're sinners, the wages of sin is death. Because God is righteous and holy, he will punish your sin and my sin. That means we are all damned and condemned to hell forever. That's your, that's your future. Your future as a sinner is you are going to hell for your sins under God's righteous and just damnation. I know you've been sinned against. I know there's people who are worse than you, but we're still sinners. And the Bible says every sinner. So not just you, I'm talking about myself too. We're all doomed to die and go to hell. That's what we deserve. The good news is that God sent his son, Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. God sent his son to live in this world and die for your sins and rise from the dead so that if you would repent from your sins and trust in this God who became man, the message of Christmas, if you trust in the God-man, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, you will be saved. But you need to turn from your own sin. You need to turn from your own righteousness and your own religion. And you need to trust in Jesus Christ alone. And if you trust in Christ he will change your heart and you'll follow him the rest of the days of your life. He'll give you his Holy Spirit. He'll cleanse you of guilt and shame and he will give you his power to walk with him and his people until he comes again to save us all. That's the good news. So if you're not a Christian, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. But we think about this. Did God fulfill his promise to Israel, yes or no? Yes, right? So we should praise God. We should praise God that he gave light and that he gave joy and that he gives hope. But when Jesus came, John the Baptist was confused, wasn't he? He's like, if you're going to rule with righteousness and be the wonderful counselor and the government's going to be on your shoulders, why am I in jail? That's what John the Baptist was thinking, right? This makes no sense. I'm reading Isaiah 9. It says the government's on your shoulders, bro. Where are you at? I'm in jail. Are you the one or are we supposed to wait for someone else? John wasn't the only one who was confused. Judas was confused, right? Judas saw all of it and he was still confused. Judas was offended. He was offended by Jesus. So much so that he decided to betray him. Government on your shoulders? That, you talk about dying on a cross? That's not government on your shoulders. That's you being crushed by the government. You're supposed to free us from oppression, not be oppressed by them. And then even Peter and the disciples were confused, weren't they? They missed it initially. And so they asked, even at the end, did Jesus come to bring the kingdom or not? In Acts 1, 6, that's what they asked. Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom or not? When's it coming? When's Isaiah 9, 7 coming? So I ask you again, when you look at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, has Jesus fulfilled this promise yet? Yes or no? I mean, are we free from death or are we still going to die? Yes. Are, we, are we free from death? Or are, we, are, we, are you still going to die, yes or no? Yes. yes. You're still going to die. Okay, where's that freedom? Where's the security there? I mean, it's a bit confusing. The answer is yes. Jesus brought the light and joy. He brought the freedom and security we need. In principle, that's a key word. In principle, he brought all these things and secured all these things. He defeated Satan and death. At the root level... It's another key word, root level. Or at the foundation with God, he did this. So at the foundational root level, we have light. We have joy. We have security. We have freedom. And yet, we still ask the question, is there still more light and joy to come? Yes. Is there still more freedom and security to come? Yes. yes. Not at the root level though. The root is completely secure. The foundation is completely secure. In principle, it's all already done. Not at the root level. There's no more joy. There's no new joy to be had. No new light, no new peace, no new security. What we need is, or what we're waiting for, is a completion. We're waiting for the fruit to come, all the fruit to come from the root, right? We're waiting for the completion of the building, the completion of the security. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the fullness of the light and the joy and the freedom and the security. So God promises to make all this new 
Not only for God's old covenant people in Isaiah, but God's new covenant people in Christ. In other words, the prosperity will never end, but not yet. Christ is coming again, right? And when he comes again, the dead in Christ will rise first. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise first. Right? And then we will meet him in the air and we will rule and reign with him. It says we'll sit on his throne and reign with him on a new earth forever and ever. So here's my question to you. How can you be so sure that this is going to happen? Gonna, gonna happen? How can you be so confident? I mean, we face sadness right now, right? I just shared one of my trials of sadness. How can I be confident even in my sadness? How can you be confident even in your darkness and in your gloom? Answer from this passage, because a child was born for you. A son was given to you. That's why you can be sure. And because this king died on the cross and rose from the dead and has been exalted, that's why you can be sure. So Christmas is not just about the past, it's about the future. Christ said, I am going to what? I go to what? Prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming back again to get you. There will be a new earth. No more tears. No more pain. No more sorrow. Life and light and joy from God forever and ever and ever. Sisters, brothers, he will wipe away every tear from your eye. Amen. And how can we know he'll do this? Let's go to the very last phrase of this. I want you to be so secure in this. Look at verse 7, the last line. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will accomplish this. Why is this going to happen? Who's going to accomplish this? Who's going to accomplish this? The Lord. But it doesn't say the Lord will accomplish it. It says, what will accomplish it? Zeal. zeal will accomplish it. That's what it says. Zeal is going to accomplish it. Whose zeal? The Lord's zeal. I mean, who can stop God? Psalm 153, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Can Satan stop God? <clears throat> Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And God is going to do this with his zeal, his passion. Like a bunch of diehard fans at a K-pop concert. <laughs> zeal. I've seen zeal. I've seen it. Like a soldier protecting his comrades, willing to lay down his life in the middle of a battlefield. Like a mother bear protecting her cubs. Like a parent, like you, many of you parents, who will do everything in your power to make sure your child is safe. Right? Passion. You'll do everything you can to make sure your child is safe and flourishes because you're passionate for your child. You're zealous for your child. And the zeal of Yahweh, of God, is going to make sure that you have light and life and joy and security and freedom. And no one can stop him. So you're going to have it. God is not just, oh, you're not a side hobby, right? This is not a side job of the Lord. He is consumed with passion for this. Listen to Jeremiah 32, 40 and 41. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Listen to verse 41, this is crazy. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will put, plant them in the land in faithfulness. And here's the phrase, God's gonna do this with all my heart and all my soul. What does it look like for God to do with all his heart and all his soul? That's zeal, right? God is wholeheartedly committed to planting you in the new earth with the new government, with the Prince of Peace reigning, with you having fully glorified bodies forever and ever and ever. Now, there's one more objection I have to to get to here because we still have doubts. We have all these objections that come to our mind. I mean, but didn't God, didn't God, wasn't God sorry that he made the earth when, and then he had to flood the earth, right, in Noah's day? And wasn't he sorry that he made Saul king and regret that he made Saul king? And didn't God marry Israel and then say that he had to divorce her because she was unfaithful to her covenant? 
How do we know that this time God's actually going to get it done? I mean, his marriage didn't work to Israel. His, I mean, the first time he had to flood the earth and just kill almost everybody. How do we know that this time it's actually going to work? Let me just answer those briefly. With Saul, that was a small picture of David being on the run because God had a bigger plan. So in that small sense, God regretted he made Saul king. But Saul had to become king so David could run away from Saul so that David would write all these psalms about suffering, the suffering Messiah, to point to Jesus. And why would God divorce Israel? He divorced the hard-hearted nation of Israel, but he always had a remnant who would be his. And he used that to point to the final marriage that would never end. And what about the flood? The flood was a pointer to what? God will judge the whole world not by water at the end, but by fire. In other words, brothers and sisters, God plans and even grieves over the small things, the small pains that he intentionally plans in your life as part of his plan, his bigger plan, to accomplish his bigger good purposes for your life. In other words, you can't redeem a people from the world if there is no need for redemption. You can't plan a resurrection without death. You can't plan an outpouring of the Spirit uh, uh, with, with, with the grace of it until people feel their lack of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's part of the bigger plan. God always carries out His plans. He always does what He wants in the big picture and in the small picture. And so it is with your pain. So it is with my medical situation or whatever else you're going through. It's part of His bigger plan. He works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. But there's tears. The tears are part of the plan. But those tears will not only just be wiped away, they will be reversed. And you will look back on the new earth and be glad and thank God for every single detail of His plan in your life. And I mean that every single detail, you will thank God on the new earth. He will wipe away every tear from the eyes of every single one of his saints. He will give joy. He will give light. He will drive away the darkness. He will give hope. He will fulfill what he promised. He is passionately committed to this. He has done it in principle. He will do it in your life in the future. There is hope for the hopeless. There is light for those dwelling in darkness. And there is an overwhelming and eternal joy and happiness for those who are currently today dominated by sadness. So how shall we live? My application comes with three verses from Isaiah. My application is hope, hope, and shine. Okay? Three words, hope, hope, and shine. Number one, hope. Isaiah 55, one through three. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. That's what God's telling you right now. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, God is telling you. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. So what I'm saying is, hope in the first coming of Christ. If you're not a Christian, come to Jesus. If you are a Christian, come to Jesus, hoping in the first coming of Christ. He lived for you, he died for you, he rose for you. Don't give in to despair. Second hope. Don't only hope in his first coming, hope in his second coming. And don't give in to despair. Here's what Isaiah 60 verse four says. This is still from Isaiah. Lift up your eyes all around and see. I want you to see this now. Picture this with your imagination. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. What does that mean? Brothers and sisters, you're sharing the gospel. We're having children. We're sharing the gospel with children. We're spreading the gospel. And you know what? One day, all of our gospel seeds that are planted, all of those who are converted and become disciples, they're all going to gather to you and gather around us as we gather around Christ when he comes again. Hope in his second coming. And lastly, shine. This is Isaiah 60, verse one. Here's the command. Arise, church, oh church, arise. 
shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. Thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness, Isaiah 56, 1. For soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. So the call is to stand up as a church, shine the light of Christ, do righteousness, do justice, encourage each other in this. One last time, God has promised, God has fulfilled, and he will fulfill. Hope for the hopeless, joy for the sadness, light for the darkness. All in Jesus Christ. And so we pray like the saints have always prayed all around the world. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have already fulfilled these promises in your first coming, in principle. And so we are secure because you died and rose. And Lord Jesus, we praise you for your second coming because you're almost done preparing a place for us. And whether we die and are present with you until your second coming or whether you come in our lifetime, you're coming soon. And so we pray that we would hope in your first coming and hope in your second coming and we would arise and shine your light in righteousness and justice and love to our neighbors and to one another and to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.